Well, welcome students and community guests. We're so glad you're here. Thank you for coming to this event. Um, I am Hope Gailey. I am a senior biology major here at UNC and I'm graduating in this December and I'm hoping to pursue a career in medicine one day. So this is very pertinent to my own life and I'm excited to introduce um, Jesus and Prozac, a Christian psychiatrist's perspective on mental health medication and following God. Um, we want to thank several organizations that have helped um, put this event together and many members of these organizations that are here tonight. Um, Mental Health Ambassadors is a student organization whose mission is to promote conversation around mental health, um, destigmatize de mental illness, and facilitate support networks and present educative programming on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill. So we're thankful for um, this conversation that we're going to be having tonight. Um, we thank College Collective, a campus ministry of Chapel Hill Bible Church, crew at UNC, the North Carolina Study Center, and InterVarsity Graduate and Faculty um, Ministries. We also want to thank um, Christian Medical and Dental Association for being here as well tonight. Um, thank you for Duke Center for Christianity and Scholarship um, and Duke Crew for pioneering this event in 2017 um, with Dr. Kinghorn. Um, and we wouldn't be able to host this tonight um, without them for doing that last year. Um, so the way that this event is going to work is Dr. Kinghorn will present first and then there will be a time for Q&A afterwards. So please hold your questions to the end. Um, Dr. Kinghorn is a psychiatrist who works centered on the role of religious communities in caring for people with um, mental health, is, excuse me, mental health problems and on ways in which Christians engage in practices of modern healthcare. Um, he's jointly appointed within Duke University um, Duke's Divinity School and the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. And he is co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Cultural Initiative and is a staff psychiatrist at the Durham VA Medical Center. Um, he has written on the moral and theological dimensions of combat trauma and moral injury, on the moral and political context of psychiatric diagnoses, and on the way that St. Thomas Aquinas um, image of the human as a wayfarer might inform contemporary practices of ministry and mental health care. Dr. Kinghorn received his Master of Theological Studies degree and his doctorate in theology both from Duke and completed his MD at Harvard Medical Center. Um, please welcome Dr. Warren Kinghorn tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Hope. Can all of you hear me? I have a mic, good, okay. Um, thank you all, thanks to Hope for the introduction. Thank you for all of you for being here. It's really an honor to me that you'd come out late in the semester on a Thursday night. And I, uh, I'm really just grateful that this is such a great crowd. Thanks to the organizations that have sponsored this and especially to the Study Center for kind of handling all the logistics and I really appreciate it. It's really an honor for me to he be here with you. Um, I am from, from Duke. And I realize that that, you know, is a thank you for letting me come on your campus. I appreciate that. And uh, I realize we're getting to kind of a sensitive time of year, so I will not try to, you know, convert you or to make you into lovers of Duke. But I do want to just take a brief moment to say that one of the things that Duke is blessed with, of all the things that UNC has that Duke does not, 
One thing that Duke has that UNC does not, because it's a, it, UNC is a state university, is a Christian seminary. And I have the privilege of teaching both at the Duke's Medical School and also in the Divinity School at Duke. And as Hope said, to co-direct an initiative called the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. And one of the things that we love to do, I, I co-direct that with Dr. Far Curlin, who's a UNC med school and undergrad graduate, and uh, who definitely pulls for the Tar Heels every basketball season. And one of the things that we love to do is to uh, invite people who have vocations to healthcare of some sort, who want to engage health and medicine and disability and healthcare with respect to the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have a fellowship program that if any of you are interested in taking a year or more, and uh, some of you in the room are, are doing this program or have done this program, uh, to study in the Divinity School, to take courses uh, uh, studying theology and Christian history and biblical study, to do that in the context of a group of people that are all seeking together what it means to follow Christ in the world of healthcare, and to do things like practical work in the community and to have mentorship to do that, then we have a program for you. We call it the Fellowship in Theology, Medicine, and Culture. Um, I, uh, I brought a, a few flyers and I've left some here and there's some by the back doors. If any of you are interested in this program uh, and, uh, and have either are thinking about a gap year before you go into a health profession program, or maybe you're current medical students or current health profession students here at UNC and are interested in doing this, I would love to be in conversation with you about it. And, uh, and I know that some of you have are already thinking about um, applying for that program. So just keep, take that as an invitation. We've had a lot of really wonderful UNC students come and complete the program in the last four years. And, and that's one of the reasons that I love um, being here. So thank, thanks to you all for, for being here. All right, enough of my plug for Duke. So to, for our purpose of, the, of, our, of our talk tonight, a lot of you are probably wondering, in a talk titled Jesus and Prozac, what exactly I'm going to say about the relationship of Jesus to Prozac. And, uh, and I think some of you might be a little bit worried that I might say something on the order of, like, if you are a Christian, or maybe if you're not, and you have Jesus, then you shouldn't need Prozac, or you don't need Prozac, or any other medication. And, uh, and you can see here's a church in Western North Carolina that has a particular view of that relationship. And, uh, and I would just say that that's absolutely not what I want to say tonight. Uh, when you're facing depression or anxiety or any form of mental illness, uh, Jesus is incredibly important, to say the least, and I'll talk more about that over the course of this talk. But medication may also be incredibly important. It might even be life-sustaining, even life-saving. And often, followers of Jesus can and should take medication, do take medication, uh, when faced with different mental health challenges. Um, and so I wanna, I'll say that over and over again over the course of this talk. Um, but medication and mental health care can shape the way that we interpret our lives and our experiences. Things happen to us as human beings in the way that we think about ourselves and our lives and our bodies and our communities when we engage in mental health care. When, when any of you or anyone comes to me as a psychiatrist or when I talk to people as a psychiatrist, things are happening there. It's shaping our understanding of ourselves as human beings. So one thing I want to do in this talk is to think about, like, what does it mean to think from the perspective of Christian faith about mental health, about mental health challenges, and maybe specifically about the use of mental health medications. Uh, I'm gonna speak tonight, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm also a Christian theologian. I'm not presuming that all of you in the room share Christian faith or belief. I'm presuming that, that many of you do not. 
I'm just saying, I'm going to speak tonight from the perspective of Christian faith and Christian practice. And for those of you that aren't in the Christian context, I'd invite you to think about how this relates to your own traditions and your own context, and, and we can talk about that. So I'm a big uh, believer in, in lists, and so you're going to get a set of lists tonight. Uh, and so get ready. Um, so our roadmap tonight, I first want to just talk about a bit of context about, especially about mental health on college campuses like UNC and Duke and other universities. And then also a little bit of context about just how prevalent the use of medications for mental health challenges are. And then we'll get into our list. I want to talk about five truths about who we are as human beings. Then talk about three maybe potentially misleading ways of thinking about mental health that I'm going to argue are present in our culture and, and probably familiar to, 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 to many of us. And then come back from the perspective of Christian thought and think about what are three like, Christian ways, Christian correctives to this? What are three ways in which Christian thought and practice might, might help us to think more faithfully than these three ways? And then I want to get more practical at the end and talk about four things to do if you're struggling, when we're struggling, and then four helpful roles for any Christian community. So that's where we're headed. So a bunch of lists. So, you're, so uh, get, get ready. All right, so a bit of context first. Um, the first context, I think, is that as you all know from living and working and studying on college campuses, on this college campus especially, mental health and mental health challenges are really a big deal, not just at UNC, but at pretty much every college and university in the United States. Uh, I know that UNC has a mental health task force that's now constituted. Some of you may be part of that, and I'm glad if you are. Um, and uh, every university, including UNC, has had an increasing demand for campus mental health services. So some of you probably uh, are, are seen at UNC's uh, Student Mental Health Service, and that's really great if you are. This is something that's happening across the country. And just to give a little bit of context for like, when we talk about mental health on college campuses, what is it that people actually experience? And I want to show a few slides. I'm not going like, to you know, bore you with a ton of data slides tonight, but at the very beginning, I want to show a few. And this is from a national survey called the National College Health Assessment that is a national survey of about 70 colleges and universities across the country. Tens of thousands of students take this survey every spring and every fall. It's an anonymous survey that's completed and the results are tracked year to year. I don't know if UNC is a participant in this survey. I know that Duke is, but I would, uh, I would I would guess that probably what I'm going to show here is probably reflect, it's certainly reflective of the country, and I'm guessing it's probably reflective of, of UNC also. Um, and so this, is, this will give you some statistics, not just of what people say when they're asked things on this survey, but also I've given some trends over time. So from 2009 to 2018 on this survey, you can see how, how college students and graduate students across the country have responded to a few questions. So what do we mean when we talk about mental health on college campuses? Well, first of all, a couple of questions in the survey, and you can find all this online. There's like hundreds of questions that you can get to about all different kinds of mental health, of health outcomes. But one of the questions is, have you, felt very, have you ever felt very lonely? And the question is like, in the last two weeks, in the last month, in the last 12 months, and 55% of men and 65% of women on college campuses across the country will say that they felt very lonely in the last 12 months. Here's another slide. Have you ever felt very sad? 
And here you can see, again, 58% of men and 73% of women, so about 65% overall, will say that they felt very sad in the last 12 months. And you can see the trend here. These are, these are fairly flat, but you see the trend, especially since 2013, looks like it's trending up a little bit. That actually, compared to how students responded when, when many of you were in high school, college students now are, are endorsing these at slightly higher numbers. And this, this increases when we get into things that are maybe more terms that sound like clinical terms, like you know, that, that you might think of as, as diagnostic terms. So one of the questions on this survey is, have you ever felt so depressed that it was difficult to function? And in spring 2018, the last time that data was available, 45% of women and 34% of men said that in the last 12 months, they'd felt so depressed that it was difficult to function. And not only are those really high numbers, but you can see that there's a, a noticeable trend upward, especially since 2012, 2013, where those numbers have increased uh, you know, 20 to 30 to 40% in that time of people that say they're, they've, in the last 12 months, so depressed, difficult to function. Here's another common term that gets a lot of, that a lot of us experiences. Have you ever felt overwhelming anxiety? And these are huge numbers. 49% of men and 69% of women across the country on college campuses will say that in the last 12 months, they felt overwhelming anxiety. And these numbers also are trending up over the last 10 years. This is probably one of the most uh, concerning slides for me. Have you ever seriously considered suicide? And in the most recent survey, 11% of men and 12% of women, so basically the same number of men and women, have said that they've seriously considered suicide in the last 12 months. That's like one in eight or one in nine college students across the country that in the last 12 months seriously considered suicide. And one of the alarming things about this for me is that these, are, these numbers are, are increasing. So 2009, 2010, 2011, men and women answered that at a rate of 6%. And now, just a few years later, they're answering it at double that rate, at a rate of 12%. And then there's some questions about treatment. Have you been diagnosed or treated by a professional for anxiety within the last 12 months? And you see here that 12% of men and 26% of women answer yes to that question. So one in four men, basically one in, one in four women, basically one in eight men. And those numbers are increasing. And this is partly good news. It means that people are more willing to seek mental health care, uh, maybe to go to a counseling center or to, or to seek out care. But it also is a marker of increasing distress on college campuses. Here's another one. Have you been diagnosed or treated by a professional for depression in the last 12 months? And similar. Numbers are a little bit lower than they are for anxiety, but similar. And also an increasing trend. And then just to show a, a, a bar graph that I think tells you what you already know and what's already being talked about, but just to, to say what the data shows, when uh, college students are asked about unwanted sexual contact and sexual assault, these numbers to me are really high. 4% of men and 12% of women, this is in spring 2017, report in the last 12 months being sexually touched without consent. 1% of men and 5% of women uh, having attempted sexual penetration without consent. And 1% of men and 3% of women report that they were sexually penetrated without consent. So think about the numbers of students that filled out this survey and of this number of people to have experienced this. This is a really big deal. It's, and it's, it needs to be talked about. It's probably not talked about enough on college campuses. And it's a reality here. It's a reality at Duke. It's a reality pretty much at every college and university across the country. 
And so places like UNC are trying to respond to this and trying to take different steps and different action. So what are the lessons to draw from this, this data, which I know is kind of, kind of depressing just to see these numbers in this amount. I think one is just the point that mental health challenges on college campuses like UNC are really common. And the other is that they're not just common like for some students out there, you know, like so people that you see sort of walking across campus. They're common in your classrooms. They're common in your student organizations. They're common in uh, your dorms. They're common in this room. There's no reason to think that all of these numbers don't apply in exactly the proportion, if not more, in this room than they do in any other way. That means that many of us in this room are, 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 are living with the kinds of challenges that I've just named, are thinking of suicide, or are, have experienced overwhelming anxiety, or have been so depressed that it's difficult to function. So I want to say very clearly in this talk, like if you are one of, if, if you find yourself in that, in that, experiencing that, if you're one of, if you're among the one of eight students that seriously considered suicide in the last year, or the basically more than one in three students that has, um, has uh, felt so depressed that it's difficult to function, or the majority of students that have said uh, that in the last year you felt sad or lonely or very anxious, then know first that you are not alone. There are a huge number of people, not just out there, but in this room and in your organizations that have the same kinds of experiences. You're not alone, you don't have to be alone, and there is help for you. And I would just say there's lots of then possibilities of, of how you can get help and how you can get support. Um, there are really good therapies that are out there that are offered through places like Student Health, but also through counselors and therapists that are maybe not connected to the university. And I'd be glad to talk about more of those in the Q&A. Um, communities can do a lot. Student organizations can do a lot. One of the things I hope we can talk about tonight is like how can campus organizations be involved and in active and proactive in meeting the kinds of needs that you all are feeling in yourselves and in your communities here. And I think medications can be very helpful at times. And that's what we're gonna be talking about you know, in, the, in the remainder of this talk. But I think the main thing is if you're, one of the, if you're someone who finds yourself depressed or anxious or sad or lonely or especially thinking of suicide or living with trauma, don't can think that you're alone and reach out and get help. And if you have, if you want to talk about that afterward, I'd be very happy to talk with any of you about how that might happen and how to do that. We can talk about that as a group also. So that's one context. The second question though is like, what about mental health medication? What is a mental health medication? So I've drunk at least two cups of coffee today and uh, in part so I could be kind of awake for this talk and you know, do my work. Is, is, that, a, is that a psychiatric medication? Because it's something I'm taking in my body to be more alert. Um, is the lunch that I ate, does that count? Um, if, I take, if I have a thyroid deficiency and, and take thyroid hormone supplementation to have more energy, does that count? I'm gonna define uh, a psychiatric medication or mental health medication for this talk as any substance that's prescribed in a medical context that's intended to alter unwanted experience or behavior and that's not primarily intended to treat another medical condition. All of this, you know, that's kind of an arbitrary definition, but when I talk about psychiatric medication or mental health medication tonight, that's what I'm talking about. 
And how often are, are these taken and prescribed? So you may or may not be surprised to know that one in five American adults take a psychiatric medication, about 26% of women and 15% of men overall. This is a graph that shows uh, use of antidepressants specifically, which is one uh, subset of, of these medications that's used to treat depression and also anxiety. And you see these numbers are huge, 8.6% 8 of, of males in the United States age 12 or older and 16% of, of females age 12 or older take antidepressants. And you can also see that these numbers have gone up over time. So this trends from 1999 through 2002 to 2011 through 2014. And so, so our, as a population, we're taking these medications in much higher rates. And there is definitely some difference, not only by uh, gender, but also by, uh, by uh, 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 racial and ethnic background. So non-Hispanic white, self-identified non Hispanic whites in the United States are more likely to take antidepressants than, uh, than people in other racial and ethnic groups uh, by a factor of at least two. And, uh, and among children, among American adolescents age 12 to 19, 6% have used uh, these medications in the last month, have used some kind of psychotropics in the last month. 3.2% of adolescents age 12 to 19 have used antidepressants, about twice as many girls as boys. And if you think about meds for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or stimulants, it's about twice as many uh, boys than girls as take these medications. And 1% of adolescents are on antipsychotic medications. Um, among adolescents age 12 to 19, so folks that are a little younger than a lot of you are, but including in your age group, 53.3% uh, of adolescents taking psychiatric medication had seen a mental health provider in the last year. And you might think that that's good, that 53% of people taking these medications have seen a mental health person, but that means that 47% have not seen a counselor or a therapist or a psychiatrist. They're getting medications from pediatricians, from primary care physicians, or in some, in, from some other, other provider, and not getting like, a lot of psychotherapy support along with this. So this is, this is the kind of context in which, so mental health problems are huge and increasing in prevalence. Mental health medication use is really common and increasing in prevalence. Um, I do want to say a couple of things before I go on. Uh, so about you know, the need not to generalize before I proceed then to generalize. Um, different mental health problems are very different. So substance use disorders are very different from major depressive disorder, which is very different from post-traumatic stress disorder, which is different from personality disorder. So uh, it, it's, it's a mistake to think that any mental health challenge is basically the same because they're quite different and they're different for individual people. And so it's, it's hard to kind of speak in general about mental health problems. It's also hard to speak in general about medications. Different medications do very different things. They have very different side effect profiles. They have very different um, mechanisms of action. And so, you know, we can get more specific, especially when we get to the Q&A on medication use in general. And most of the things I say in this talk are gonna to meant to be very general and need to be made more specific. And then also just a note of appreciation. So, so in this talk, I'm gonna say some things that might seem to raise questions about medication use or maybe even uh, seem to challenge medication use in some ways. And uh, there, are, there are questions that I wanna ask, but I wanna make clear that Medications are really important. So this is a, I just like this picture, this is Pilot Mountain, there's a nice you know, tobacco field right here, and this is a nice sort of North Carolina scene. 
And I work at the Durham VA Hospital. I take care of veterans with mental health problems. And I have a lot of patients who can be in places like this, in their communities and in their homes and in their families, uh, because they've been able to take various forms of medication over the years. They're able to, to, to live with their families. They're able to work. They're able to, uh, to reach their goals, in part because they've been able to take medications. And so I appreciate medications. And I also think we need to think about what we're doing when we talk about using them. So here's some questions that come up. I think not just for Christians, but for everybody. But these are specifically questions for, for Christians. If mental health medications change the way that I think and feel, if I'm taking something into my body that's going to change my emotions or my thoughts, how does this relate to who I am as a Christian? What does mental health medication tell us about the relationship of body and mind or body and soul? How do these two things relate to each other or, or react or, or, or uh, interact with each other? And ultimately, is it okay for Christians to take medications? I think uh, most churches and most kind of official statements say that it is the case, but there's an awful lot of stigma against taking medications or against seeking medications or even talking about medications in some Christian circles. And my guess is that some of you in the room have experienced that yourselves in talking with people about meds or hearing meds talked about in churches or in other Christian contexts. And so let's talk about that tonight. So it's impossible, I think, to really make sense of medication use if we don't start from the right place. So we just start talking about medications. The, the, the bigger question is, who are we as human beings? So I want to give kind of five Christian principles for who are we as human beings. And then from that, we can begin to think about how do we make sense of the use of medication. So five truths about who we are. So the first is that we are deeply and fully loved by God. That is the deepest truth of who any of us are in this room, not our GPAs, not whether we're going to get into medical school or some other professional school or not, not what organizations we're part of, not where we go to school. It's none of that stuff. It's that we are known and loved by God. Uh, so Genesis 131 says, God saw everything that he'd made and behold, it was very good. Uh, we're part of God's good creation. There was a Catholic philosopher that I really liked named Joseph Pieper, who lived in the middle 20th century, who reflected on this, this statement that uh, God saw everything he had made and behold, it was good. And he said, what's the nature of love? And Pieper says, my tentative answer to this is that it has a lot to do with approval. In, in the sense of the words root, that loving someone or something means finding him or it probus, uh, the Latin word for good. It's a way of turning to him or her or it and saying, it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in this world. I love that statement because I think that that's how God sees us. To turn to us in love and to say, it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in this world. And we can say that to ourselves and we can say that to each other also. And it's perhaps never more important than to say that when someone is depressed or anxious or wondering, like, do I belong here? Or even do I belong on this earth? To, to turn to each other and say, it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in this world. The second truth about who we are is that we are deeply and fully known by God. Psalm 139 that many of you know says, oh Lord, you've searched me and known me you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. 
You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you, O oh Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. This is a really wonderful truth that uh, you hem me in behind and before, that we are known by God, we are loved by God, and that's the deepest truth about who we are. And for Christians, it goes a step further. We're not just kind of known and loved abstractly as God's creatures, but we're known and loved as, as those who have been brought into the life of God's Son, into the life of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And if you read over and over again in the New Testament, there's this idea that as Christians, we're baptized into the life of Jesus, that we're not ourselves alone, but we are held, we're enfolded by the Holy Spirit into the life of the Son of God. So that we, it's, it's like being, being held in Jesus's life and safe there. So we're loved by God, we're known by God. Third, we're living creatures of earth. Genesis 2 says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. One of the things that we are, one way to describe us is that we are dust, we're God breathed dust. We are natural beings. That means that we have cells and molecules and neurotransmitters. That means that our brains matter for who we are. Our bodies matter for who we are. Um, we share that with other animals and with the rest of the creation. And so from a mental health perspective, the idea that like, some things that go on in our bodies would affect how we feel and how we live in the world is just a kind of natural extension of this truth that we are living creatures of Earth. And we're living creatures of earth who grow and who love in relationship. Um, there's a difference between a human and a rock, for example. A rock, well, you know, this is you study rocks is more complex than this, but humans are, uh, are born into relationship. We are surrounded with relationship even before we're born. And when we're born, we're born into various networks of relationships with mothers and fathers and grandparents and caregivers and, and siblings and people who come around us and eventually friends and coaches and teachers and peers. And, and we, we, we learn and we love and we grow in relationship. We can't help but in some way desiring relationship in some way. And one of the amazing things about human beings is that like, we actually learn who we are not just by being born and like having a body, but by engaging in tens of thousands of exchanges of relationship that children learn who they are as they like, you know, fall down and skin their knees and cry and then are comforted and held and told it's gonna be okay. That kind, of, that kind of, of, of interchange helps us to develop as selves in the world. So we're living creatures of earth who find ourselves in relationship. We are biosocial creatures. And the fourth, we are wayfarers. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and there's num numerous texts in the Bible that talk about this image. Um, Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, lay let us lay aside every encumbrance and run the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the, the one who goes before us. 
this, this image of, of the human as one who's on a journey is really through, you know, built throughout the scriptures. And it's deep in Christian tradition. We have this, this image of, of, the, of the, the human being as someone who's on the way, on a journey, of being pilgrims. I think this is a really helpful way to think about human life, that we are those who find ourselves on the way. Uh, we're wayfarers. Uh, so we are from God, who is our creator. We are going to God, who is our goal. And so in the midst of that, we find ourselves as those who are on a journey. And when we help each other, we're, we're also those who are on the way. And this leads to a very practical question that I think is the most helpful practical way to think about uh, the use of medication, or for that matter, pretty much anything else that has to do with how we make our way in this world, which is what's needed right now for the journey. So if we're those who find ourselves on the way and, uh, and we've run into challenges, then what's needed right now for the journey? And with respect to depression or anxiety or another mental health challenge, that answer might be medication. It also might be support. It might be friendship. It might be to get out of an abusive relationship. It might be to have a stable place to live. It might be a lot of different things. Um, but that's the key question to ask. What's needed right now for the journey? And the fifth truth about who we are is that we're called not to control, but to wonder. Um, I really like being in control, and I suspect that a lot of you probably do as well. Um, I spend a lot of my life trying to get control over myself and over my environment and over my work and, you know, and spend a lot of energy trying to figure out how to do that. Um, we live in a world that often thinks about success as about being able to control ourselves and our environment and other people. And if we're in control, then things are, are okay. And there's things to be said for that. We should be able to be able to you know, have a kind of influence over the world around us. But um, if we think of control as really the highest good, if, like, if my being in control of myself or my behavior or my family or my spouse or you know, my you know, roommate is, 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 is ultimately what life is about, then we miss out on what a lot of what humans are called to do. Because we're not ultimately called to be in control. We're called to be drawn in love to God and to God's good creatures and good, good creation. So I always want to think about, like, am I being formed into a deeper and better lover of God and a deeper lover of, of what God has made? And, uh, and that's, that's, I think, a place to start. So that's our first list, and probably the longest one. I want to go into three misleading ways of thinking about mental health. And this is where I'll have, I'm going to show a few drug ads, and I want to kind of help get your advice on what you're seeing in these ads as we, as we go along. But first I want to talk, and this is the most kind of technical I'll get in this talk, I want to talk a little bit about um, history of philosophy. So some of you here are probably philosophy majors, at least you know who this guy is, um, Rene Descartes. Um, the first misleading thing I think that, that comes up with respect to mental health is this idea that mental health problems are either in the mind or in the body. And of these three things I'm going to talk about, I think that all of these probably are, I mean them as caricatures. You could probably see ways in which um, they don't quite fit every context, but I think you'll find them to be, you know, to be, to be things that people talk about. Um, so Descartes was the founder of modern philosophy. He lived from 1596 to 1650. Um, he was a Christian. He was trained by Catholic Jesuits. And he lived at a time, he was this really bright 
creative thinker. He lived at a time when, when modern science was kind of getting started, what we would now call early modern science was getting started. And when nature was increasingly being thought of as, as a kind of extension of what would later be called forces, but space and extension. And he saw this coming. He saw this time when science would kind of explain the natural world. And he didn't want that to incorporate human beings. He, he thought there was something special about human beings that couldn't be absorbed into this kind of natural world of impersonal forces. And so those of you that have taken philosophy, you, you know, you know he, just, he tried to think about how he would get beyond this. And he said, I'm going to just doubt everything about the world and about myself. And he, he realized that he could doubt almost everything. But the one thing he could not doubt was, do you know the answer to this? He couldn't doubt his own thinking because, you know, so he said famously, I think, therefore I am. And, uh, and he said, and, and from that, Descartes concluded that uh, who he was most deeply personally was a substance whose whole nature was constituted by his thinking. And he concluded that that substance was somehow different from the substance of his body, which was basically a machine. And so Descartes gave us this image of the human as a kind of thinking mind that inhabits a machine for a body. That's, and that's the kind of image that, that he gave to us. And that image is still very much with us in the way that we think about human life and we think about ourselves. And it's very hard to get away from. But this is a challenge when we start to think about mental illness. Because the question is, like, if humans are souls or minds who their mental, spiritual, cognitive selves who inhabit bodies, which is a matter of like space and extension, and um, our physical bodies and maybe some of the emotions, then where do we place mental illness? Does it fit? Is it a problem of the mind or is it a problem of the body? And either way, you're stuck. You're going to go wrong either way, depending on how you answer that. If you answer that mental illness is in the mind, then you get responses like here. This is a this is a survey from Lifeway Research, which is the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. They did a telephone survey in 2013, and they interviewed 1,001 Americans, and they asked a number of questions, and they asked, do you agree or disagree or not, don't know or not sure to this question? And one of the things that they asked was, they said, with Bible study and prayer alone, people with serious mental illness, like depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia can overcome mental illness. They said, do you agree or disagree or not? So I could ask this room, how many of you agree or disagree with this statement? And you could, you could say that. Well, it turns out that among people that identified themselves as born again or evangelical or fundamentalist Christians, about half, 48%, agreed with that statement. That with Bible study and prayer alone, people with serious mental illness like depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia can overcome mental illness. And about the same number disagreed with that statement. That's a huge number. And like I say, I'm a Christian theologian. I think prayer and Bible study are really important. I would encourage all of you to do those things. But if you live with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or, uh, or depression, I would encourage you not to focus on Bible study and prayer alone. I would always want to think that more is necessary. But, but half of self-identified born-again Christians said yes to that question, or they agreed. And among the whole population that included those folks, but also everyone else, about one in three said that they agreed with that statement. I think that this is a result of this, this idea that mental illness is somehow in the mind or in the soul, but not in the body in some way. So that's a problem. But then you can actually go wrong on the other side. What if mental illness is not uh, in the soul or mind, but what if it's actually 
a bodily problem? What if, what if all mental illness or mental health problems is, is just something going wrong in your body? Well, then you get textbooks to show this kind of graph, which is, you don't need to know what this is, it's really small, but it's basically the, you know, a, a modeling of the neurotransmitter systems and a, 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 a modeling of how the uh, monoamine uh, hypothesis of depression might work. Um, if people say, like, the, you know, the, the idea that, uh, that, that there might be uh, uh, really important things going on with respect to norepinephrine and serotonin and, and dopamine with respect to uh, mental disorders like depression is absolutely right. But if anybody tries to say that in seeing a graph like this, that this is what depression is, or that this is what anxiety is, then that's wrong too, because mental health problems are not just things that are going wrong in the body, they're, a, they're, they're experiences of living in the world. You know, we don't, it's not just a matter of something happening in our body, but it's something happening in our lives and in our relationships. And so this is another way that we can go wrong thinking with Descartes. So the Christian corrector to this is not that we're minds who inhabit bodies, but that we are living bodies on our way to God. We're mind-body unities, not dualities. We're drawn to God by desire. We're drawn by God by redemption and election and participation in the life of Jesus. That we're those on a journey and not minds who just happen to inhabit bodies. So the second thing I think that, that uh, is maybe a little misleading is the idea that mental health problems happen within an individual alone. So this is a, a drug ad in a psychiatric journal from 1969. Um, it's, uh, it's advertising a, a, a benzodiazepine, an anxiety agent. So what do you see in this picture here, in this photo? It's a housewife. A housewife, okay, good, yeah. What do you, what, what's her, what, what else do you see? She got a what, sorry? Fingers in her mouth, yeah, fingers in her mouth, yeah. Multiple fingers in her mouth, yeah. What else do you see? Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, she looks overwhelmed by all of like, the cleaning or household duties that she's she's, she's overwhelmed by all these things around her. And what is it? There's a tricycle in the background. There's there's mops. There's brooms. There's um, there's an iron right in front of her. Yeah. And what's what's going on with the with the with the the handles of those? Think. Say again. What? It looks like a cage. She's in jail. That's exactly right. Like she's imprisoned by these mops and brooms and and uh, and and things like that. So let me read the text of this of this uh, of this ad. And this again, this is written for psychiatrists, um, encouraging psychiatrists to prescribe this medication. Um, it says, and you can see, you can probably read what it says on the top. It says, you, you can't, talking to the psychiatrist, you can't set her free, but you can help her feel less anxious. So here's what the fine print says that you can't read up on the slide. It says, she's, you know this woman. She's anxious, tense, irritable. She's felt this way for months. Beset by the seemingly insurmountable problems of raising a young family, confined to the home most of the time, her symptoms reflect a sense of inadequacy and isolation. Your, meaning the psychiatrist's, reassurance and guidance may have helped some, but not enough. Cirax, oxazepam, cannot change her environment, of course. 
but it can help relieve anxiety, tension, agitation, and irritability, thus strengthening her ability to cope with day-to-day -day problems. And then, it, and then it goes on. So what do you all think about that as a, as a solution? Depressing. Depressing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it kind of misses the boat a little bit. Like, you know, like, you, Cyrex can't change her environment, of course. The assumption here is that, like, you know, is that the, the problem is, is not with the stuff or with where she is, but the problem is, like, inside of her. And that, you know, nothing else can be done, but we can at least help to decrease her tension and, and irritability. And what I want to say, again, you know, with the advantage of several decades of, you know, lived cultural experience, you know, here is like, what's going on in this person's community? What's happening in her marriage or in her relationships? Why is she feel trapped at home? What's, wh like, what's keeping her there? What is it that, what are the expectations? What are her dreams that aren't, maybe aren't being met? What are the particular challenges? What kind of community does she have? It's those kinds of things that are, that are centrally important to understanding what's happening. And sometimes if we assume that mental health problems are just something that happens inside a, a, a person, that they're only a problem of the body, it's just something inside you, then we don't think about these broader social things that are happening that might actually be contributing to why she feels or why we feel the way that we do. So I want to argue not that mental, mental health problems happen in an individual alone, but that mental health problems always have to be seen as, as at the interface of a body of who we are and of the communities of which we're a part. You know, if we think that mental health problems have an individual alone and that's all we're looking for, then we might actually never get to what the, what the really central questions are. Maybe actually the problem is with, is with a community. Maybe it's with a, a relationship. Maybe it's with a family. Maybe it's with a culture and not just with an individual. So if we just look for individual problems, we're kind of barking up the wrong tree. A Christian corrective to this would be that, uh, that we have to embrace the fact that we're creatures. Um, a, a, a writer that I like named Wendell Berry is a farmer and poet and philosopher. He had a really beautiful essay. He says, our bodies are involved in the world. Their needs and desires and pleasures are physical. Our bodies hunger and thirst, yearn toward other bodies, grow tired and seek rest, rise up rested, eager to exert themselves. All these desires may be satisfied with honor to the body and its maker, but only if much else besides the individual body is brought into consideration. We have long known that individual desires must not be made the standard of their own satisfaction. We must consider the body's manifold connections to other bodies and to the world. The body fearfully and wonderfully made is ultimately mysterious, both in itself and in its dependencies. The third thing I think that can be misleading is that diagnoses define identity. So here's a few more uh, drug ads. This is a little bit more recent. So this is, uh, this, this is an ad from about 10 years ago that tells a story. Um, and you're supposed to read it from left to right. This is like, if you know, like religious art, this is a triptych, it sort of, you know, tells a story. So, uh, so here's, here's what, and, and there's, there's actually helpful frames, literally, to help see what's happening in the story. So, so I'll, I'll turn around so I can see the, the images here. So again, um, what's happening on the left here? What do you see here? Anybody? Yeah. She's sad? Yeah. So first of all, it's a woman. It's a woman. You'll notice most psychiatric medication ads show women. 
it's a white woman, which is, um, which is I think, so thinking about how race and gender work in respect to drug ad marketing is, is helpful to, to consider. And she's sad, like, you know, so, so you know, it's, it's, she's looking maybe outside the window, I'm not sure where. The camera is taken, you know, is like, is tilted, so, you know, the window itself is kind of off. Um, you know, she's, uh, she's, look, she's looking out in the distance, and there's a frame here, and underneath, I'm not sure you can see this, these, um, these statements underneath, but it says, my sadness just won't go away. I don't have the energy to go out with friends. My constant worry is affecting my job. Now, all of, none of these are great. If any of you are experiencing this, I would say this is, a, this is definitely something to take note of. But none of these are particularly uncommon. I mean, these are kinds of things that most of us in the room will have experienced at some point. But what this ad is saying through this frame is that in this, we're to see not her name, but to see depression. This is now depression that we're supposed to see. And then we're supposed to see the data. And there's some kind of highly simplified you know, distillations of research that's, it's, it, that shows that, uh, that claims that this particular medication is proven, given that we've seen depression, is proven to reduce certain kinds of symptoms and to, uh, to help to, um, to, to control this depression. And then what do you see on the right-hand side? Camera's not tilted anymore. There's other people around. She's arm wrestling. I'm not sure what's going on there, but you know, like she's, you know, things have happened. And what we're supposed to see is that, is that this, you know, this, this data here has helped to move from depression to difference. That's what the force of the drug ad is supposed to show here. Now, the point here is not that this, I prescribed this medication, it's, not, it's, it's a fine medication. Uh, the point is not, it's, it's not a critique of this medication, but it's to say that a lot of what's involved here is not just saying that this medication can make a difference, but it's, it first requires seeing experience as this diagnostic term called depression. And if we're not careful, that diagnostic term like depression or anxiety or borderline or schizophrenia or bipolar can so define who we are. It doesn't just name a set of experiences, but it names who we are as human beings. And that is not consistent with a Christian view of who humans are. And here's another couple, these are the last drug ads I'll show. So here's, here's another question like, is she just shy? Or is it social anxiety disorder? If she's just shy, then you probably wouldn't use a medication, or at least it'd be harder to justify a medication. If there's a, a term that can go along with it, then a medication makes a lot more sense. And actually, drug, drug uh, mental health medications are often sold by marketing the condition that they're they're uh, labeled to treat. And this is a little bit out of, out of focus, but here's uh, another example. Uh, this, here's again, all these are white women who are pictured in these ads. Um, here's a woman, and it says, still fighting monsters. So in this case, it's not just that, the, that the, the diagnosis is present, but that the diagnosis is made into something, into an external enemy, into monsters that she's fighting, and that then a particular medication is, is intended to be able to treat. Now, all of these are ways of helping to frame, in some way, diagnosis as identity. I would just say we have to be careful about that. Diagnosis is never identity for Christians because our deepest identity is that we are held in the life of Jesus Christ. It's Christ who is our life, not any label that anyone can ever give to us. The deepest truth about who we are is that we are known and loved by God. So this brings us to two ways of seeing. 
So one way, and this is the misleading way, I think, but, but not uncommon, is to think about mental health problems as identity-defining problems uh, limited to the individual and caused by dysfunction in the body or the mind. This is a very common way in which psychiatrists, I think, you know, can sometimes lead people to think about mental health challenges. And they're not altogether, you know, that's not altogether wrong, but this way of thinking can actually increase stigma and shame because the problem is you, and the problem is you or your body, and, uh, and it, can, it can, you know, affect the way that we think about that. It can also deflect attention from environment and relationships and culture. And it can also encourage us to view ourselves and our experiences as medical or psychological problems that need medical or psychological solutions. And it grants a great deal of power to people like me, to psychiatrists and others who are dispensers of the kind of technology that can help to solve those problems. So again, this isn't a, an, an entirely wrong way of thinking, but it's misleading and I think it can lead to unintended negative consequences. Another way of thinking about mental health problems is that mental health problems are challenges faced by wayfarers, embodied, relational, loved creatures of earth who are on a journey to God. And medications can make sense in this way of thinking about mental health as well, but not as just technical fixes for dysfunction. They're answers to the question, what's needed right now for the journey? Given where I am right now in my career at UNC at the end of the fall semester 2018, what's needed right now for the journey? And the answer to that may well be a medication, and it may be other things also, or possibly other things instead. That's a very individual question. So that leads to the question, what do you do, do, you do if you're struggling? And these are both, uh, I wanna just briefly talk about these things. Four things to do if you're struggling. I think the first thing I would say is to remember that you are loved and known by God. Matthew 6, 28 through 30. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? The deepest truth about who we are is that we are loved and known by God. Second is refuse effortless perfection. Uh, I don't know if any of you, is, this, is that a term that people talk about here? Is that anything any of you have heard of? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. This was a term that, um, that I think was actually coined at Duke about 10 or 15 years ago by an undergraduate woman who was writing about the experience of women at Duke. This has been about 2004, 2005, although I highly doubt much has changed in this respect. And, uh, and this idea of effortless perfection is like, this is a kind of what, in, in the, the, what this writer was saying is, is like kind of expected of undergraduate women at Duke. And I think also maybe also in other ways, undergraduate men at Duke and, and elsewhere. Um, and it's the idea that like, you need to be smart, accomplished, fit, beautiful, popular, but all without visible effort. Like, you need to be able to do it, but you're not supposed to look like you're trying too hard to do it because that would like, kind of defeat the point. And so if you attain that kind of effortless perfection, then that's the, the marker of what it means to be like a flourishing Duke undergraduate. And of course, that is absolutely unattainable. You know, people get exhausted and depressed and suicidal trying to look like they're uh, smart, accomplished, fit, beautiful, popular, all without visible effort because that's not humanly possible. That's not who humans are. 
And that is something that creeps into undergraduate and graduate cultures, it creeps into faculty, it creeps into churches and Christian student organizations, it creeps into our hearts. And so how can we stand against that? And I think this, this matters when we start to think about medication, because there's a couple of different ways that effortless perfection can show up with respect to medication. So one might be to turn to medication too quickly as a way of conforming and surviving the impossible expectations of a place like, you know, like UNC. Um, and, and that gives more power to it. Like if, if medication is just a way to kind of keep the system going, that's not so good. I'm not suggesting that that's why most people take medications, but that is, a, that is one, one pitfall. But I think the more common uh, uh, way that effortless perfection can be at play is to imagine ourselves as the kind of people who ought to be smart and accomplished and fit and beautiful and popular without medication, because we shouldn't have to need it, because that means that we'd be weak, and therefore we refuse to consider medication until things are really, really, really bad. Both of those are ways in which that kind of unrealistic expectation of effortless perfection can, can, can get in the way of thinking clearly about what's needed right now for the journey. The third would be that seek counsel and get help. I said earlier, if you are struggling tonight, you are not alone. There are others in this room that are experiencing and have experienced what you have, and get help. Get help from UNC Student Health. Uh, seek counsel from others that are around you that have also struggled. Seek help from, from students that have made themselves available in that way. Uh, seek help from campus ministers and from pastors. Um, get help, connect with somebody. And don't leave this room tonight until you've figured out how that's possible to do, um, because things can be better than they are. And then as much as possible, keep the journey in view. I've said to, the, the most helpful question is what's needed right now for the journey? And I think it's that question that needs to be sort of kept in mind. And I often use the image with my patients of the image of a starting line and finish line in talking about medications, because I prescribe medications a lot. And I will often say, you know, medications are probably not gonna get you to the finish line of where you want to be in your life. They're not gonna fix everything that's going on with your family and with your finances and with your, with your community. and, and but they can help to get you to the starting line where you can then feel that you can engage more meaningfully in things like psychotherapy and in groups and in just navigating really complex relationships and in taking steps to get a job and, and other kinds of things. So I think I would think about like what does it take to get to the starting line? And then over the long run, not at the moment when you're in crisis and thinking about whether you need a medication, because that's really not the time to be asking these kinds of questions. But over the long run, the question is, how does taking medication affect my relationship with others? How does it affect my relationship with my body? Am, am I learning to see my body as a friend or my body as an enemy? How does taking medication affect the way that I relate to God? And how does taking medication affect my ability to respond effectively and faithfully to challenges and to injustice? So what is, like, what, what's happening over the course of my life as I learn to live with, with, um, with medication taking or medication not taking? And finally, four helpful roles for any Christian community. I'll go through this so quickly, I put it all in one slide. Um, to refuse effortless perfection in Christian communities and contexts. In my own experience as an undergraduate years ago, some of the ways, some of the most um, kind of um, 
uh, stigmatizing communities in terms of people who didn't have things together were Christian groups. And I would say that uh, that absolutely can happen and don't let it happen. And one way, to, one way not to let that happen is to talk about mental health problems and challenges in the context of your Christian communities. When somebody, and this may already be happening in, in groups like Crew, but when, when there's a large group context and somebody can get up and talk about their own experiences of living with and through depression or with anxiety or with substance use or with ADHD or with loss or with trauma and can tell stories, that really is helpful to a group as a whole, so where it doesn't have to be secret anymore. You don't have to be alone. Um, third, walk with each other and encourage each other to get help. Um, there should be a kind of just, I would just encourage each other, like if people are struggling, like what does it mean to get connected in the right way to people who can help? And then the last thing I'll say is don't shame. Um, we all live with shame. Shame is a, a, a universal human emotion. Um, I feel it, and I know that you all feel it as well. Um, shame is basically the emotion that we feel when we're worried that if people only knew the truth about us, we would be um, kicked out, or we would be left out, or we'd be put aside. And for anybody, but it's maybe especially for college students, that's a pretty scary thought. That like, if people just knew who I was, I wouldn't be welcome in my program, I wouldn't be welcome in my sorority or fraternity, I wouldn't be welcome in this Christian organization. And so when we feel shame, then what we tend to do is, you think about just the, the facial expression of shame, it's like we look down, you get constricted, your muscles tighten. What we tend to do is we tend to hide. So shame leads to hiding, and, uh, and hiding leads to loneliness, and loneliness leads, and hiding lead to more shame, and so people, that's, that's one way that depression can happen. Shame also can lead to other things like drinking more maybe than would be healthy, or using drugs, or engaging in risky sex, or risky behaviors, or pursuing things that, that are really, really common at places like UNC and Duke, but maybe not so much be really healthy ways to live. Or another way that we respond to shame is just to try harder. Like I'm personally quite familiar with this you know, strategy, is like you feel shame and so you're just gonna try harder, keep working harder and harder and harder to prove that you actually do belong here at this place or in this group or in this program or in this graduate program. And all of that, all of those are pathways to anxiety, to depression, to other kinds of mental health challenge. Um, there is though a cure for shame and it's not trying harder, it's not blunting emotion, it's not hiding, but it's the capacity to be vulnerable to others and to be known and loved by others as who you are. And that is what the Christian faith proclaims, that the deepest truth about us is that no matter who we are, no matter what diagnoses we carry, no matter what medications we take or don't take, no matter what, no matter what we've done, we are known and loved by God. And that is a place to start. Thank you all for being here and for listening, and I'm and I'm glad we have some time for kind of audience questions and Q and A. And so, and I know some of you may have to leave, but I welcome uh, just any questions or comments or thoughts or pushback about any of this. And thanks so much for being here tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Kinghorn. Um, we've got two microphones, so I think we'll handle both these two aisles. Um, we've got about 15 or 20 minutes for questions. Um, so just raise your hand if you have one, and Brandon and I will do our best to get the microphones out. Thanks, Matt. Uh, 
Matt's doing this with a broken foot. I'm too, doing so it with a boot. Very honored. So, yeah. I see hand hand right here. All right. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you so much. Um, I you've put like a lot of. Uh, words to a lot of thoughts that I've been having about mental health and the Christian community for a long time and I really, really appreciate everything that you've shared. Um, second, I want to ask you if you have any advice for like negotiating relationships with people who might not understand this perspective that you've given, like who might still be thinking of mental health as like an identity issue as something just in the body, as something that just one person struggles with alone. Like how would I, how would somebody go about talking to those people, um, whether it's somebody who's struggling with mental health or somebody who just wants to start that conversation? Yeah. Thanks for the question. And, and I think the, the the latter question is really is really important. Like, what what happens when people are don't agree with this stuff and are like, and especially when people are struggling, maybe and and like some some people may really it may be comforting actually to think about uh, a mental health challenge as something that's happening in the brain or happening in the body, you know. And and I really respect that a lot. And and as a psychiatrist, you know, I, I am constantly in conversation with people about that. Um, I think that the, taking that specific question. And your your question was broader, but like the idea that um, the idea that that mental illness is um, is a brain disorder and fundamentally a, a bodily problem is actually a way to uh, kind of it, it really helps when people have been blaming themselves for the way that they are thinking and feeling. And uh, to the idea that this is not just a, a failure of will or a failure of character or, I mean, just all this awful stuff that we, like, you know, that, that happens. And you're like, why am I, why, why can I not perform and feel and relate the way that I want to? And to be told, like, it's not you. It's actually something that's happening in your neurotransmitters or with your serotonin level or this, this language of chemical imbalance that happens. That can be really helpful in helping to helping to people feel less shame and to feel like, okay, now I have a way to go forward. You know, I can now feel like this is something that's happening in my body. I can take a medication and I can do other things. And I think that at that moment, like I think that's okay. You know, if 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 that's if that helps people to shift from a place of like just feeling really down on themselves and unable to go forward and kind of trapped in shame and self-blame and other things. And if that's a way to to go forward, I think that that's I think that that's okay. And I, I actually don't discourage that too much. I don't say no. It's you know, it's a, it, but I think I think that's that's a, that can be really important. Important. I think over the course of a lifetime, like let's let's say that um, you know that that six months or a year or five years later, if if we're still in that place of thinking about the unwanted experience and behavior that I have, those parts of myself that I, I, I associate with my depression, if that's only a kind of biological brain problem that I'm constantly having to kind of find ways to take medication to kind of keep at bay. I think that I think that there's there's some loss there because because ultimately we're not like you know minds that inhabit brains but we are we are uh, we are wayfarers and we're those who are kind of are kind of to, to be living holistically in the world. So I think in the moment when people are thinking like this is a this is a bodily problem and that's comforting and I'm gonna go with that I'd say great that's wonderful because there's there's truth to that, but uh, but over the long run I think it's a matter of how do we bring body and mind kind of together in one in one whole and not see our, our experiences being kind of split off from, from us. So.
Right? So um, I think more broadly, though, I think like meeting people where they are, and one of the things that, I'm, that terrifies me about giving a talk like this to several hundred people is all of you are in different places. And so to say something, I'm, I'm, you know, one of the things I worry about is that I'll say something that gets heard in a way that's different from what I intend, and then it, and then it actually has a, a negative effect. I think um, listening closely to where people are, meeting people where they are, is really the essence of asking that question, what's needed right now for the journey? Uh, because you just can't, you can't know in, in the abstract. So, I mean, I, can't, I don't have an abstract answer to depression at UNC, but um, I'd love to be in conversation with people and to think what's specifically going on in your life and in your relationships and in your studies and in the ways that you're inhabiting the world. And, and the answers come at that level, I think. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Um, I'm wondering, uh, well, yeah, thank you for your talk. I'm wondering uh, how you would navigate what I see as two opposed extremes. So the one is the, uh, maybe more common among certain fundamentalist churches, the Tryon Church of God that you, you posted, which is treating mental health and other issues uh, basically as sins. Mm -hmm. So you don't have enough faith, you need to pray more, read more, and that's why you're depressed or that's why you're anxious. But then I think at a place like UNC and probably at Duke as well, mm -hmm. the, the, the temptation is actually to err on the other side mm -hmm. and to treat things that maybe are sins or caused by sin, at least from a Christian perspective, and kind of medicalize them away and say, oh, that's, that's just you know, a problem with the biology or some social dysfunction, and there's not actually any sin here. Obviously, non-Christians aren't normally thinking in the terms of sin, but with issues like alcoholism, other addiction issues, this comes up, but with a lot of other things as well. And so I'm wondering where, where you strike the balance and how you draw the line. It seems to me in a lot of these cases, there's some sin involved. There, I mean, there are bad choices that have been made, but there's also uh, there are biological considerations and, and community considerations and lifestyle stuff. But how do you navigate all of that? Yeah, thanks for that really easy question. Like, yeah, <laughs> I think we're out of time. I see all, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so like, how do you think about the relationship of mental health challenges and sin, and you mentioned social causation as well, and how all that gets navigated. I mean, and I, again, I think, uh, I, I don't wanna, I, I'm, I'm gonna disappoint in an answer into saying that it, it requires understanding the story of a person. You know, like those are, those also are questions that can't be easily be answered in the abstract. Um, I think it's also getting away from sin only as like, as bad choices and more of sin is the, the condition that we are all in some way caught in in a fallen world. And we live in a world that's, that's, um, that's bound in sin. We all stand in need of grace. And so, um, and so sin is not just something that enters our college careers at one particular point when we drink too much on a weekend, but it's, 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 the, it's the, the, the state of the world in which we find ourselves. And so we're always caught in a world that is um, falling short of itself and falling short of God. And we're, we always stand in need of grace. And so that broad conception of sin, I think, is, is then, is then a, a way in which to think about, again, like we are, we're journeying through this fallen world where our, our, our ultimate goal and destination is life with God. 
And so as we think about what's needed right now for the journey, it's, it, it can be any number of different things. It doesn't have to be an either or between um, someone is making a choice that's sinful or, or reflecting a sinful way of action or um, experiencing, I mean, it, it, really, it really has to be more unified and, and holistic, I think. Um, so I'm, I'm hesitant to kind of draw strict boundaries in that way. Um, but I would say, um, I'm, I, I think that you're right, there's a lot of Christian communities that do a lot of harm by uh, using sin too broadly for the experience of depression or the experience of certainly psychosis or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And, uh, and that then leads to shame, which then leads to more sin. So you get into like traps and cycles of sin where sin leads to shame, which leads to more sin. And I think that um, I think that you have to have a, if you're going to even invoke the language of sin at all, it has to be a very broad understanding that we are all in the condition of sin. That sin doesn't just characterize people that seem to be acting in ways that we don't want, but we are all characterized that way. We all stand in need of grace, and we all are known and loved by God. And I think there's more harm probably in, in, in referring to mental health problems as sin than there is in the reverse, actually, in some ways, in, in kind of focusing on these broader contexts. But, but I think the challenge is there, and I think it has to be an individual kinds of, kind, of, kind of discernment thing. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, I guess from the perspective I'm sure a lot of people in here have, is that if we know people that suffer from these issues who aren't followers of God or don't have a relationship with God, is that how do we balance coming at them with this knowledge of Christ and um, knowing that that can help them, but also um, with this knowledge that medication is also sometimes the only thing that can help them. Um, I guess, how do we use that as... It's easy to say sometimes, you know, that, you know, God can make all your problems go away. But how can we instead use this um, knowledge that you've helped give us here as a tool to also convert and proselytize as well? Yeah. Uh, well, one thing I think is, is to, th that idea that God can make all your problems go away, that's not what you were saying, but that, that as, a, as an idea is um, just not reflected in the way that in the Bible, in many ways, you know, if you read the Psalms of lament, for example, you know, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? You know, like this is this is this is a description of something that sounds a lot like depression, and this is a biblical writer that's writing this, I and mean, this is the psalmist who is close to God's heart, and and so that experience of feeling alone and abandoned is not something that means that we're somehow away from God. It might it might be a characteristic of what it means to follow God, and so the Psalms can really be helpful. Psalm 13, Psalm 88, Psalm um, uh, you know, there's lots of lots of different of the lament Psalms that can be helpful in that way. Um, and so that's one thing I think is is not to have an idea that um, knowing Jesus makes fixes things quickly because that's just not the experience of the Bible. You know, it's not scriptural to say that. Um, with respect to the question of what, what if people are not inside, what if people don't don't understand themselves as followers of Christ, and are um, and and how do we, how do we walk alongside them? And I would say that um, that. Well, again, it has to, has to be, it has to involve the specific story of that person's life. Um, but I think that uh, it's true 
as a whole that uh, humans are known by God and loved by God. And that's a truth that we can hold out. Um, it doesn't have to be one that we have to like persuade other people of, you know. But it's something that we can hold to be true. And so I think to be able to walk with somebody who's wondering if they matter and if their existence matters and if they should even be on the earth and if they should get help, and to be able to say, "You are of deep value. You are deeply valued." And I don't. I'm not even asking you to believe this, but I believe that God loves you and knows you and you have deep worth and value on account of that. Um, that. That can be, I wouldn't force that on somebody, but that can be something that we can affirm of each other, I think. And then the question of like what's needed right now for the journey also applies in that case also. So as I'm walking alongside my non-Christian friend who's really struggling, the same question applies. What's needed right now for the journey? They're also on a journey. And it, it doesn't right now include them understanding themselves as going to God. It doesn't include themselves as being, as being, as being Christian. But, but what's needed right now? And how can we, in our support, in our encouragement, in our maybe our encouragement to take medications, um, how can we sort of help to be like, those who walk alongside those who are on a journey? And so I think I would have the same frame of reference for Christians and non-Christians alike and, I mean, and ask the same question either way. Uh, thank you very much. This was uh, really interesting. I'm a graduate student here in anthropology, and I study psychiatry cross-culturally. Um, I'm also an Episcopalian, and I want to build on the question from uh, our gentleman in the white shirt up front about um, thinking about how Christians have created therapies uh, for people who... Uh, they think are sinful uh -huh. and that this is, it's sometimes about things being labeled as a mental disorder. Sometimes it's not, but it's labeled, it's therapies to help with brokenness when people really should be going to a psychiatrist, um, or at least that's my personal opinion. And so um, there are these programs out there where people are trying, you know, people go to. And so how do we as Christians like, respond to programs that are out there that really don't actually deal with the problems at hand. Um, and relatedly, how do we, as Christian, you know, there are also Christians who will want to label things that psychiatrists say are not mental disorders as mental disorders. And so how do you, as a Christian psychiatrist, yeah. balance that? Yeah. Gosh, you all, all have great and tough questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so are you referring, in, in the, the Christian programs you're referring to, are you referring to like Christian recovery therapeutic so, programs? Or are you referring I mean, to? I mean, part of it, I'm thinking about like Christian conversion, like conversion yeah. therapy programs. Yeah. Um, but those have also moved into a kind of language of brokenness. And so it's not just about uh, particularly evangelical environments that want to uh, change people and move people out of homosexuality, but it's yeah. a broader conversation about brokenness and sinful brokenness um, that leads into the kind of balancing this, but it's really created in a, a programmatic, yeah. You know, there's a 15-week curriculum. Uh, people, yeah. you know, churches sponsor these programs. Yeah. So the the, the I mean, the specific uh, issue of sexual orientation change programs. I mean, those are those are um, obviously quite controversial in the culture at large, and especially in psychiatry and psychology. And those are 
I think I think it's fair to say that those movements and programs are are dying out, and, and they're they're not they're they're um, they're kind of collapsing from within in some ways. As there's much less of a of a sense that that's um, that that those kinds of expectations were ever reasonable or appropriate, and so so those programs I think are are fading on the cultural landscape. There's some that are still around. Um, much more common is is like Christian therapeutic homes and programs that offer trauma healing and offer, you know, he, and also there's obviously a lot of Christian counselors and therapists in this area and in other areas. And I think it just depends, like, you, you know, I keep all, all these questions, I'm like, it just depends on the, on the specifics of the situation. I mean, I know, uh, I, I do work with Christian therapists kind of across the theological spectrum, and I think there's some that are just fantastic Therapists. I mean, they just are really good at, at listening to people, at wisely discerning what's needed for the journey in a given situation. Um, there are other uh, therapists, and I think some schools of therapy that I think are, are very focused on things will be okay if you just believe the right things. If you say the right things and confess the right things, then everything will fall into place. And I don't think that that's a particularly robust Christian conception of how the uh, emotions and will and intellect work. And so I think you, a good, good therapy isn't just about like arranging your beliefs in a certain way and then letting everything else happen, but it's a matter of learning how to live faithfully in the world, which involves like you know, coming to terms with emotion, even maybe that we don't want. Uh, it involves belief, it involves action, it involves practice, and, and good therapy involves just a lot of, of being able to listen and to accept our own experience to then decide what does it mean to move forward. And so it just, it just depends. Um, but I would be wary of, of Christian inpatient programs, for example, that make promises of change in four weeks or something like that, because maybe, maybe not, but, but I think you just have to be, be careful about that. Um, kind of going off of that question, um, you put up the statistics from, I think it was LifeWay Research, um, putting sort of prayer and Bible reading in like a negative sense, like many people believe that this is all you need and that is not actually all you need. Mm -hmm. And I'm with you on that is not actually all you need, especially in the mental health context. Um, but can you give sort of a positive account of the benefits of spiritual disciplines and how those kind of factor into like our mental health, um, and not only in a therapeutic sense, yeah. but in a like robust, like spiritual sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know, prayer. I mean, the, I certainly have lots of anecdotes. I mean, of just my own experience and also the experience of others being profoundly um, uh, healed by in, in in profound ways by prayer. Whether it's personal prayer or whether it's interpersonal prayer, I mean, there's healing prayer ministries that can be really, really powerful. Um, prayer especially is a really deeply intimate experience. It, any of you that have had the experience of being prayed for by someone else, I mean, that's, that's about the most intimate thing that you can do with someone else short of touching them in many ways, like coming before God alone. And so that's a, that's a pretty powerful moment that involves certainly a relationship with God, but also a relationship with other people. And, uh, and I think really, really important, powerful things can happen in that way. I mean, destructive things can happen too if it's, not, if it's done you know, carelessly, but I think that prayer can be really deeply healing. And, and I think having rhythms of prayer, having disciplines of prayer can be helpful, I think, in, um, in, in, in lots of different things. I think um, 
Yeah, and, and so I, I, would, I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, certainly studying scripture, I mean, I absolutely believe that the Bible is the word of God and is healing and that, that, uh, that dwelling in the text of the Bible can help us to see how close to the ground of human experience the Bible really is. I think praying the Psalms can be a way of grounding ourselves and realizing that things don't always have to turn out right all the time, but, that, but then being joined in that, in that, in that, uh, to, to know that, that our own experience is, is reflected in the experience of a psalmist and that we're not alone is really deeply powerful. And I think the Holy Spirit works in that in all ways. So, so nothing what I said is trying to sort of discourage um, Bible study and prayer and Christian community and other things. Um, I think that's really, really important. So I'd say, yeah. All right, this will be the last one. I'm sorry, guys. All right, some last one. I've had time to actually think about my question, so uh, thank you for coming. Uh, I won't hold the Duke thing against you, at least for tonight. I'll let you go. That's right. Wait until um, February. Yeah. Aside from that, um, I just wanted to talk about something that, you know, especially during this time of the semester, we have a lot of projects going on. Exams are about to hit us really hard, especially within the college community. Uh, but something that kind of hits home for probably a lot of us in this room is that, you know, singleness uh, in the Christian community, especially in college, and, you know, just how it's associated maybe with mental illness and maybe that that feeling of being alone or whatever, and not necessarily having to feel like we need someone else to make us feel whole or to have that mental illness feel like it might go away or may be less than or we might be able to cope with it better if we have somebody else, you know, in a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, I think your question is, what does it mean to feel alone? I mean, and is a singleness as well as a description of, of, of relationships, but I think the broader question is, what does it what does it mean to live with feeling feeling alone? Is that am I hearing that right? Or say again, what's your basically? How do you allow us to understand that we don't have to have that feeling of being alone just by being single and the association with mental illness and being alone? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I certainly don't want don't. I don't know of of evidence about a relationship between relational status in college and mental illness. So yeah, I don't know that being single or not having a relationship is correlated with depression or anxiety. It may or may not be, I'm not sure. But, but I would say that, that I, mean, I mean, I think that being 20 to 25 is like the hardest years of adulthood. I really, and I'm a lot older than that now. And uh, I think it's, it's that, I think that's the case because, and I really, I really, I really do think that that's the case. And it's because like when you're, when you're kind of, especially when you graduate from undergrad life, which is difficult enough, like you're no longer in a kind of track of educational institutions. You're having to make big decisions that really starts basically when you're a sophomore, junior in undergrad and then continues after that, that matter for your life. You're not yet usually in a, in a, committed relationship that's going to last for the rest of your life. And so th everything seems to be kind of up in the air. And yet they're big, important decisions. And you know we're all kind of learning to live in the world. And that can be really co a confusing time. I think that actually later in adulthood is, is easier in many ways because you have made decisions that you're that you're with. But I, I, would, I, I mean, my thought is that is that to is it's if if people who aren't in I mean, who aren't in a, a committed like partnership or romantic relationship or something like that are, are just left completely alone, then that's a deep problem with the way that Christian community functions 
in a larger community. You know, so that shouldn't be happening. It, 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 didn't, it, didn't, it shouldn't have happened in the early church. It didn't happen in the early church. And, and there was no sense in which uh, people who were single in the early church were somehow to be sort of left out of relationship and community. In fact, they were to be kind of prized and privileged by the community. And so I think that's, that's a, a, a challenge. If, if people who are single or not in a relationship are finding themselves sort of unable to build ties, that's, that's, that's like uh, goal number one for a Christian student organization or a Christian or a church or a Christian community to help figure out ways to do that better. Because um, it's, it's, it's the role of the church not to make marriage or being in a committed relationship the criterion for being known and loved. The church needs to be able to do that for all people and not just for those that are in a relationship. Thank you. All right, everyone. Well, I feel like we could keep going for a long time with questions, but unfortunately it is nine o'clock and we want to respect Dr. Kinghorn's time. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kinghorn, for being with us tonight. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I know this is a busy season with exams coming up, so really appreciate you all being a part of this event tonight. Um, thank you to all the sponsors that helped put this on. And uh, the last thing I'd like to say tonight as we're wrapping up is just to say that if tonight sparks something in you where this is a topic that um, you have personal questions about or concerns about, or it's something that you have friends that are struggling with, um, there are tons of campus ministers here from the different organizations and other representatives, uh, mental health ambassadors, which is a great group on campus. Um, not all of us are trained mental health professionals, but we are all, all um, happy to meet with you, to talk with you, and to point you towards resources. Um, so please don't hesitate to reach out to me or to um, any of the other organizers here tonight. Um, and with that, we say go in peace and thank you again. Thank you all. Thanks.